You are listening to The Real Men Feel Show with your hosts, Andy Grant and Apio Hunter. Real Men Feel is all about encouraging men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to opening up discussions that most men aren't having, but you certainly don't need to be a man to join us. The Real Men Feel podcast is produced live every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern for your growth and enjoyment. You can find more information about the Real Men Feel movement at realmenfeel.org. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or subscribe on iTunes by visiting realmenfeel.org slash iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at realmenfeel.org and at facebook.com slash realmenfeelshow. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. This is a weekly program and your comments, feedback, and participation are welcome during the live show and anytime in the Facebook group, on Twitter, or at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's get into this week's show. Hello and welcome to Real Men Feel. We are thrilled that you are joining us today. I am Andy Grant. I am a transformational energy coach, an author, and a speaker. And I am your host for this, the 57th episode of the Real Men Feel podcast. You can learn about future and past shows at realmenfeel.org. And you can also, I invite you to take advantage of an opportunity to have a one-on-one complimentary coaching call with me. We're always looking for ways to serve men in, in another way at a deeper level. So uh, I invite you to take advantage of that. You can learn about that at realmenfeel.org or at theandygrant.com. Uh, but that's more than enough about me, right? It's not the Andy show. So let me introduce my friend, <laughs> fellow coach, and co-host, Apio Hunter. Hey, hey, Andy. I don't mind it being in the Andy show every once in a while. I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> right. And uh, for those watching us, we are both in our matching green shirts today for some unknown reason. <laughs> Remember when out, we just picked it up, you know, energetically, and yeah. boom. Well, it is finally spring here in the U.S., and, uh, you know. And hopefully it keeps blooming and blossoming. Although I woke up to snow this morning, so it was a bit of a shock. But uh, it'll be gone by this afternoon, I'm sure. Cool. Actually, I was just looking out the window. It is almost gone already. So uh, Beautiful. Well, I'm really excited about today's show because it continues one of the recurring themes of Real Men Feel. And that's encouraging guys to, to speak up, to not keep secrets, to, to realize that whatever you're going through as a man you're not alone. There are, there are other people that have been through it, that are going through it, and frankly, will continue to go through it even after you've conquered whatever the hell it is for yourself. Right? <laughs> so again, we're very excited here, and we're welcoming champion bodybuilder and author of the upcoming book, Odd Man Out, Breaking the Vow of Male Silence, Nige Atkinson. Hey, Hello. Nige. Hello. And, and where are you coming to us from? Uh, I'm coming to you from uh, a village in England, uh, in, well, in the UK, uh, south of England, called um, Stenning, which is about seven miles inland from Brighton. I don't know if you know where Brighton is on the coast. Mm-hmm. And it's a lovely sunny day here, or rather a sunny evening, and uh, probably been the warmest day of the year so far. It's been beautiful. Oh, nice, nice. <clears throat> so so let's, let's just dive into this. So you're, you're writing, and this is your first book, correct? Yeah, this is my first book, yeah. So, so, so. What, what's your, what was your experience with this notion of a vow of male silence that, that kind of led you to the point of wanting to write about it? Well, <clears throat> I think really, I mean, for starters, I mean, I, 
I never ever thought I'd end up with this project landing on my lap, to be honest with you. Uh, when, I, when I initially started writing, it was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> no. um, but it's only now I've, I've come to realize why, why it was me who's written this, you know, with Elle. Um, I think maybe if I just share a little bit about my story, about how I, how I came to be where I am in terms of having written the book. Beautiful. Because it is autobiographical as well as the book. Um, so I, maybe I'll just give you a little history of what I've kind of been through. Um, in 1975, when I was six years old, I was involved in a fight with another boy and I had to have my testicle removed. Mm. Um, and um, during that time, when I was rehabilitating um in, in between me the two operations i had um i went into my my grandma worked in a gents outfitters i'm from a i'm from a town up north called blackburn in in, in um, england um an industrial town and um she worked in in uh, a gents outfitters and um the and and i was in between like i say operations and and uh uh, she took me one day into the shop. I was six years old, and um, the these two guys who worked there, the gents, they looked down at me and they said, "You are such a brave young man. You know, you're such a brave little boy." And I looked up at them and I said, "I'm not brave. I'm just the odd man out." Mm-hmm. And you know, I was six years old at the time. <clears throat> I don't know. You know, my gra- everybody thought that was quite endearing. You know what? adults alike they're like oh bless him do you hear what he said when he was in the shop today but I think even at that age I'd started to feel quite awkward you know in my own skin and um when I returned to school the the headmaster um he was your typical he'd been like a colonel in the army he was now the headmaster of the school and you know what he said went and it was around that time where there was a lot of bullying went on and a lot of the cane was still in and you know you, you it was really tough and he actually in assembly one day he gathered all the kids together and right in the middle of assembly he actually told them that i'd lost a testicle and that and basically said that he'd banned kicking in the school that was the point he was trying to make but he told the school that i'd lost the testicle and i swear to god even (laughs) i think back to that day and it was like something wasn't right and i i honestly i could have dug a hole and basically buried myself and i think it was you know around that time that and to be honest with you i didn't even know at that age what a testicle was really you know i actually overheard my auntie uh, my mum telling my auntie that i'd lost a testicle so i knew something was wrong but i didn't really understand it all i know is when i'd had the operation was i woke up in hospital on my own with this cage across my body um and there was no one around uh, and um and so for me it was it was really weird you know because from that point on obviously kids were young at that age and a few kids i remember as we were leaving assembly went so what's that like then and what's that like for you and you know how is it not not losing a testicle and i'm like what's that (laughs) so so it it didn't come off you weren't like teased about it right away it's more like a curiosity it was more a curiosity and then for the rest of my time through infant school primary school it was just occasionally there was the odd taunt. So it wasn't, it wasn't anything, you know, kids, we just got on with it. it you know, we, 
we played. I was in the school football team, and um, and you know there were odd, odd moments of awkwardness, but for the biggest part, uh, it, it went you know relatively okay. But then something else happened when I was ten. Um, I was sexually abused by a neighbour, and um, it was uh, a, a lady who basically a, a neighbour had moved in. Uh, after we'd lost our lovely auntie Edie, and um, and she was from she was Austrian, uh, and had a Jewish husband, and and claimed she was in the Holocaust, and claimed she lost her children to the Germans, and all this stuff. And she befriended the family, and um, unfortunately during that time she took advantage of me, and and um, and to go with that, um, she um, she she was. Uh, my dad she she almost had my dad he was like my dad was like a handyman and what happened was um they fell out and this big hoo-ha happened they fell out because he couldn't be there one night to do a job for her and my mom and dad came in and said you never talk to her again and initially even while all that was going on I was really confused about everything and she was kind of like a friend really um and then she turned against the family so there was this whole load of psychological abuse came along with this this woman actually turned into the only way i can describe her was like kathy bates from misery oh wow um she was pretty insane this woman you know she'd break glass in the gutter she'd sm hit the walls in the middle of the night threatened to kill us there was all kinds of stuff went on and she was a big lady you know um so i i started to become really scared you know i was frightened of going to bed at night i i was frightened of going out i i it got really um you know there were i got really scared and um so you know at that point when we finally moved away my mum had started to have a breakdown because of this and so you know we we i then went on we moved and then it was almost time for me to go to secondary school and i actually thought you know they'd only been i, I thought it was a fresh start to be able you know to do that and unfortunately um from the first probably around the first of the second day i i i was on one of the breaks and um a young girl <coughs> approached me um who i didn't know and she kicked me in the testicles and basically when i was on the floor in agony actually said i i heard you'd only got one testicle i just wanted to find out mm. and so i was two day i was two days in to you know secondary school and already i thought oh no oh no you know that moment where i thought i'm getting away from all this and it was like oh no i've walked straight it was better before i've walked into a nightmare here and unfortunately that's when it all started you know words started spreading around i started getting known as a freak and basically taunted and um, I'm not saying it was every day, uh, you know, because, you know, let's be honest, we all, I had a pretty good childhood. I had a good family. We were growing up and there was, um, you know, I loved hanging out with my mates and playing football, but, but it, it really started to get worse. It started to snowball. You know, there was, there was some insane stuff went on, you know, everything from singing songs about me in class to writing on walls to pinning me down and stuffing grass in my mouth to, to, to grabbing my underwear and pulling them up. So pinning me down to the floor and, pulling them up so high that it was terrifying some of the stuff that happened and so um i i um i started to really struggle at that point you know with with the um i started to struggle with anxiety and my um 
my family didn't really do emotions. You know, I was from this hard northern town and it was like you know when I'd lost my testicle it was like there was no space to talk about anything it was basically shelved it was like maybe my dad said many years later maybe you know I thought you'd have a better chance if you didn't talk about kind of <laughs> you know and so um so he really right there you your your family was teaching you yes silence was the yeah. way to go Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was very much that stiff upper lip tears were seen as weak. And, you know, my first experience of that was um, when I had my stitches took out my testicles, you know, I, at that time there was no, they didn't do it with anesthetic. Mm. You know, I was six years old. They took them out by hand right there with me with no anesthetic. Mm. And I, I remember, you know, I wrote about this in the book where I find this hard to believe, but I led there and I actually remember gripping the sides, you know, gripping my knuckle, my hands so tight. They were milky white. My knuckles like, I will not cry. I will not cry. I'm going to get through this one way or another. And I just remember bottling it all, just bottling everything. And then at the end of it, the nurse went, Oh, she went, you were so brave while we were doing that. And it was like, I gave her this half smile, mm. you know, and that was my real first experience of bottling emotion. I mean, really stuffing it in, you know, and I was only six at that time. So yeah, I've gone back a bit there, but um, so yeah, that, that was kind of, you know, around the fam family stuff. And then what started to happen was as a result of that, I, I, I had a dodgy heart condition, which I didn't find out about till many years later, but my heart used to speed up really fast mm -hmm. to the point where my body would rock. And, and so that really started to cause problems for me. You know, I, I, I started to feel very, very alone, couldn't talk about anything to anyone and, and um, started to have panic attacks, um, which gradually got worse. I mean, you know, as I got a bit older, really crazy stuff like throwing me clean out of bread, smashing my rotator cuff, you know, head first into the wall, crazy stuff. Um, almost felt sometimes like it wasn't me throwing me out of bed. It was like, it was like some entity whizzing me out, you know. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of this for me started to compound. It started to solidify. And, you know, by the time I was 13, you know, they, I was taken to see a psychiatrist. Um, and again, it was really interesting because I almost experienced the valve male silence even there because my mum was going into hospital. She was having an operation and I was worrying about everything. And they went in there and she, the lady went, she put it in a little box and she went, yeah, he's just been worrying about you going in for the operation. And they put a little bow on it and that was that. Mm -hmm. And before that happened, I actually went to the doctor and I think it was just the era they actually put me on Valium and just left me on a couch for two weeks, not even being able to communicate or nothing. Just left me on a couch on Valium for, for you know, two weeks or whatever it was. And um, I don't think it was anybody's fault. It was just the way things were dealt with, you know, back then. And when, uh, when you were seeing that psychology, were you, were you keeping silent? Were you, were you telling him what was going on or were you just uh, kind of sitting there? Trying to just I, I think I was just trying to make sense of it myself. You know, I couldn't, I didn't speak about the sexual abuse for 13 years. Um, the, the, the stuff around, I had so much stuff coming up about being perceived as weak, yeah. you know, and there's all this stuff tied up around entering puberty, starting to like girls and having this one testicle and people knowing about it. So I had all this shame coming up mm -hmm. and I felt guilty. And um, I just, found the best way to deal with it was not to really say anything, you know, just to keep it all in. But what happened for me 
I didn't, I didn't really feel like I had, you know, anywhere to go. And then if I fast forwarding now to, to the, to the nineties, um, you know, I was in my twenties at this point and um, I'd started to experience like anger and it started quite young, really. So I'm saying I'm fast forwarding to my twenties. I will be in a second. I'm just backtracking again. <laughs> it's all good. And, um, and um, so I went, um, I started experiencing these like rage attacks when I was quite young. You know, I, I, there was a part of me that used to contract, meaning couldn't speak. So if people were singing songs about me having one ball, I would literally shrink. But there was another part of me that was, the only way I can relate to it is it reminded me of the Hulk. That's the way I've described him in the book, because that was a program I watched and loved as a kid. You know, Lou Ferrigno as the Hulk, the series, Bill Bixby as, as, uh, as Banner. And, um, I remember watching that and I remember crying. Oh, I always cried at the end of it. I always, I, even, I'd be on my own. I wouldn't let anyone see it, but I always cried when they played that piano theme at the end, oh. the Lonely Man theme. Yeah. That's it, what it's called. It was, it was called the Lonely Man theme, you know, the Lonely Man theme, which I only found out many years later. And he'd have his sack full of bursting with spare shirts. And, you, you know, <laughs> but for me, I think I related to him because I was starting to experience these, these surges of violence, you know, inside of me. And, um, and it came out occasionally, you know, I had fights, um, and basically I couldn't stop. I didn't know how to stop when I started, you know, and it was like, I just wanted to get out what was happening to me in my life. I couldn't, I had no other way of expressing my pain. Um, and I'm not saying I was the kind of person who was out there bullying people every day. I wasn't, I certainly wasn't. I seemed to sort of fluctuate between this person who was scared, scared shitless and occasionally I'd snap. And when I snapped, nothing could stop me. And so fast forward into the nineties, I, I, I ran about 1992. I, I, I got into my first proper relationship and it's interesting because even at that point I was probably, I think, I, I mean, most people get into a relationship quite young. I didn't, I was actually terrified of relationships. I was terrified of certainly having sex. And, and a lot of that could have been to do with what had happened to me. Um, you know, I, I, I seemed to, I think I'd found a really good ways to kind of leave my body, you know, and, and because I just felt so awkward in my own skin. I felt really awkward and I felt really, you know, really uncomfortable. And, and, and I just wanted to, I just desperately wanted to get out of my skin. You know, I wanted to get away from myself. I felt incredibly lonely and sometimes the guilt and shame was just unbearable. Um, and I met this person and it all started out really well, um, but within a very short space of time, I started to experience this violence coming up. Um, you know, it could have been if I was challenged about something, um, you know, or made wrong, or made to feel guilty. <clears throat> and it all started very lightly, you know, it had just been me saying a word back or... I remember the first time it happened, some, someone was said to me and I kicked a waste paper basket and it was all, you know, quite harmless. Um, but it did progress. And um, what followed were 13 years of violence, um, where one day I was the perpetrator, the next day she was, and, and, and I experienced some pretty horrendous stuff, which I don't feel too proud about, you know. And um, it just you know one of the the uh, key you know some real moments i really found hard to talk about in the book as well but i knew i needed to because 
it was important for me to share what had happened for me as a result of not being able to break this vow, of not being able to communicate my inner struggle, you know, my inner world. You know, on the outside, I was walking around a lot of the time like I was the Joker. That was my mask. But on the inside, you know, the paints were fucking peeling off the walls. It was like I couldn't cope. And so I, I went through off and on this. I'm not saying it was all bad, but there was some pretty harassment. Um, you know, one... Um, you know, one of the worst moments I ever experienced was we, we'd hired a car and we'd gone away for a weekend and um, we'd, we'd, we'd hired a caravan and we were heading off to see a film, a show or something like that. And we, and it, we were in a, a town in Wales and it was, uh, it was on the coast. And on this particular night, I'd, I'd, I was a bit late getting ready and well, something like that. And we, we, we were a bit late going for this show and my partner at the time was just wouldn't stop wouldn't stop wouldn't stop so i'm driving this car down this country road and um in the next moment i put my fist through the windscreen and um basically put my foot to the floor and i was doing 100 miles an hour down a dark country lane on the wrong side of the road um and when i finally when the car finally screeched to a halt i found myself running up a beach basically fighting with myself almost like trying to get out of my body out it reminded me a bit of jack in fight club you know at the end of fight club where the cameras are on and you don't you don't seem fighting anyone i was just fighting myself i just couldn't cope anymore with what had happened and not being able to talk about it and the pain i was feeling inside um and so that was you know there were other that was a key moment you know and from there i i'd had a a period of time in Canada when I was younger and I decided I would I wanted to go back to Canada and stay with a friend to have a break and I went and during that time I um I you know through that whole period of time it's really weird as all that was going on I was desperately trying to find out more about what I could do to help myself so from the age of 17 I was studying self-help books you know I'm 48 now um and at that time up north, it wasn't like the manly thing to do. You know what I mean? If you studied self-help books or you saw a psychiatrist, it's like, you've seen a shrink, you're fucking mental, you know? And so I had no money and I used to go in these shops and what I'd do, I'd like pick a football book or something. Then I'd put the, put the self-help book inside, you know? <laughs> so I make it look like I was reading the football book. And then what I'd do, I'd take a bookmark with me and sort of put a bookmark in there. <laughs> and so I, I studied a lot of that. Um, a lot of that material, early stuff, Shakti Gawain, Louise Hay, you know, I, I, I found the whole affirmation thing. I tried doing all that. None of it worked for me because, again, I've come to understand now that you can't just leapfrog over things. You know, you've got to have a space to express that pain. And then if you want to bring in affirmations, bring them in at the end of that and really be the change you know you wish to see in the world um so i was i was doing all that and while i was in canada i actually um i saw this um uh, sign outside a new age bookshop for uh i saw a sign for um for a talk um with uh, somebody called Dwayne O'Kane, who i'm friends with now and um and so i went to this talk and around that time even though I knew I needed help, I'd go into these talks and things and then I'd get up and ask a question, but straight away when I asked the question, I was giving them the answer. So I never really allowed anybody to give me the help that I needed. So it was meaning you, you were presenting something you already knew as opposed to yeah. really asking for something new? Yeah, I was being a know-all, you know? Oh, gotcha. <laughs> Not so uncommon. Another way of keeping the silence, just... Ooh. I'll share you a yeah. little taste of something I already know about myself. Exactly, exactly. You got it. So I'm doing that. 
and um, and then what happened was a, this I left a number and I got this call from this person um, called Paul again one of my friends now been friends for many years and he said uh, there's a workshop this weekend uh, a three-day workshop how would you feel about this about coming and I said well I've no money and that, that. he said don't worry about that we'll deal with that later he said meet me at this this tube station at this time and we're gonna go I'm like and he hung up he gave me the address, hung up. I'm like, my God, it's some kind of weird drug dealing, some kind of... <laughs> <laughs> and I, I actually went to this workshop and, um, and I couldn't escape. I mean, it was three foot of snow. It started snowing when we got there. And, and uh, I was in the room with about 40 people. And slowly but surely, that weekend, I unraveled. I mean, I completely unraveled. Um, I knew I couldn't carry on the way that I was doing. I knew I couldn't carry on putting myself through what I, you know, going through what I was going through because I'll be honest with you, I don't think I'd got much left in me in terms of whether I wanted to be on the planet or not. So I, um, I, I took a chance. It was hard. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And, um, and what happened was initially I, the mask came with me. The Joker came with me, you know, Mr. Humorous making a joke out of everything. Someone would say something, come on, let's get a laugh out of this, you know, and then there was this one moment where the facilitator, he said, um, he said, why don't you come up to the front for a moment? So I reluctantly agreed and I went and he sat me on a chair next to him and everyone else is in the circle. And he said, you know, you're such a comedian. He said, why don't you make this lot laugh? He said, go for it. He said, there's the stage. He said, make them laugh. And so initially it I started out all guns blazing and very, very quickly it started to wear really thin. No one was reacting. Everyone was just looking at me. No one was laughing. Um, and bit by bit, the mask I was wearing started to crack and I basically fell through the floor. I, I fell to my knees and I cried so hard. Um, and I just, I, I just let it all go. It was like I could not continue living the way I was living, feeling this guilt and this shame and thinking I was a bad man because of what had happened to me. And it's incredible, isn't it, that someone could think that at six years old or ten years old, you know, that I lost the testicle and that I was sexually abused and it was my, my, you know. Um, and so what was really lovely was, you know, I fell to the floor and, I, and, and the next minute, you know, um, came forward and, the old, and uh, it was just a, a miraculous moment for me and it saved my life to be honest and um, what was really fascinating when I came out of that workshop I knew I'd turned a corner you know I, I, I just never really looked back after that because um, I, you know it was what was really fascinating was in the in the about for about a month after I did the workshop um, people were coming up to me going you're so different and they'd say and your eyes are so white and the only way I can describe it, guys, is that I almost felt like I'd made contact with Christ consciousness. Like I was walking around in a Christ-like state. I just felt no anger, no fear, nothing. Just love for about a month. And, uh, and then, obviously, once I'd had that snapshot, then things started to, again, life crept back in. Yeah. And, and I was left obviously to do the other work that I needed to do and to continue doing that work. So at that time I was still with my partner and she did the workshop as well. And we did the work, but what happened was eventually we started to use the work against each other. And so the violence still continued off and on. And um, when we finally moved back to the UK, 
um, there was one final moment that happened and it was just done for me. I, I, we, a fight broke out between us and I picked up a bedside cabinet and I threw it at her and basically just missed her head. And I, in that moment, I thought, this is over. This is done. I cannot do this anymore. This is insane. And we went to see a counsellor and she made it very clear. She said, you bring any more stories like that, we will be calling the police. And she said, and, and, and at the end of it all, we sat there bickering at each other and she was brilliant. She turned around, she said, she said, to be honest with you, she said, you don't really look like you need help staying together. You look like you need help breaking up. Mm. And so shortly after that, we broke up from that point on. I never crossed that line again, ever. It was done. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, that things still don't crop up once in a while. They do, but I just have the tools to be able to deal with things now. Um, you're still a human being. Yeah. All the emotion yeah. is still there. And it's oh, yeah. Like, yeah. So once you yeah. let the facade down yeah. and, and let your emotions be felt and expressed, you had that moment of like, oh my God, this is how amazing yeah. I can feel. Yeah, definitely. And I think with, with what happened with my partner, you know, that sight of a coward in the corner, that was enough. That was enough for me. So, you know, one of the things that really helped me was while I was in Canada, I discovered A Course in Miracles. Um, I've been studying it now since the 90s, you know, and I've gone on to teach it. And um, also A Course of Love I've recently got into and, and the other books I've studied, you know, that have helped. But I, I find that's definitely the framework I like to work within. I find it very, very helpful for understanding the human condition, um, you know, and, and the dilemma that we're, we're in, really. So um, that's kind of what brought me to this point. And then, um, so I've continued to work on myself. You know, I'm, I'm always, always, um, you know, if it's up, it's up. And, and, and yes, yeah, some days are harder than others. But um, I really, I, I always say to people, you know, when you break the vowel sound, you don't just break it once, you break it over and over and over again. Could, could you say um, that one more time? Yeah, when you break the vow of male silence, you don't just break it once. You have to break it again and again and again and again. Um, and I think what can happen, especially in a lot of kind of new age circles and so on and so forth, is that, that like, it's like, right, I've done that now. I've been there. I'm healed now. You know, I don't have to go there anymore. Yeah. And it's like, I think they call that denial, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. I think we both have experienced that notion of, oh, well, I did, I did the work. I had my weekend event. Now I'm done. <laughs> yeah, we even have an episode on it, the New Age bullshit episode. Yeah. Exactly. It's not just yeah. a river in Egypt, yeah? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so I'm very proud of that. And, I, you know, I, I, I continue to do the work and I continue to take responsibility for my thoughts, my feelings, you know, for my emotions and my actions. And, um, you know, as a result of that, I mean, I'm, I'm married now. I, I'm married. I'm in a different relationship. You know, she's beautiful. We both studied a course. We both teach. Um, and the book for me was um, when initially I'd I said, I thought to myself, well, I'd always thought to myself when I was young, I remember sitting in school and I'd be looking out the window and I thought one day I'm going to help people. There's got to be a way, you know, and at that time I was pretty fucked up, you know what I mean? But I always got this impression I wanted to help people. And I always tried to, I always tried to be kind even when I was struggling, you know, and um, so my mum and dad, they brought me up really well like that. Um, and this, I'd, I'd had this I'd never really ever thought about, I just thought, you know, people writing books. I mean, you always hear it, don't you, where people go, yeah, I think I'll write a book one day. And they sound like it's really easy. They just go, yeah, just write a book. It'll be done in a day and it'll be published. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so I, I didn't, um, I, I initially, what happened was I heard, uh, I feel embarrassed saying this, I said it in the book, but I, I kind of heard a voice. It was my own voice that said I was going to write this book. And, um, and I'm, and I'm like, okay, this is weird. Um, and so I went to L and I said, I'd, I'd only heard the voice once before. And, and the, the, the first time it happened was when my dad was dying of cancer. And it was the day he was diagnosed with lung cancer. So he was terminally ill. And um, I woke up at very early in the morning that I was staying at my mum, my mum and dad's. And I woke up very early that morning and I, I basically, this voice said to me, you are going to have a party for your dad to celebrate his life and you will be DJing it. I'm a DJ. That's something else I do. And I thought, that's mad. And again, it was my voice, but it sounded it wasn't there were no angels there were no harps there was none of that no we're not going to dress it up so I, I walk L up and I said L I said can I tell you something I said I feel really stupid about this I said but I've just heard a voice that's telling me I'm going to have a party for my dad she went okay we'd better get it sorted then so <laughs> so we did and it was beautiful I mean what initially started out as people saying you know, this is really sick. Your dad has just been diagnosed with cancer. You're going to throw a party for him. And yet something kept saying, keep going, keep going. So I said to them, look, I want you to invite all the people you want there. That's it. Um, and we, we, we hired this hall up north. And basically my dad was in hospital on the day and we didn't know whether he could come out. And we said, well, whatever happens, we'll go ahead with the party anyway. And he did. We got, he came out of hospital for the party for one night. And I DJ'd and I sang three Frank Sinatra songs for him. He loved Frank Sinatra. And I gave him, I made a scrapbook of his life and I gave him a scrapbook of his life. And um, there was this beautiful moment between us where I walked into the bedroom and I said, just before the party, and I said, Dad, I said, I've made this for you. And I gave him this book. And this is a man, you know, who'd struggled with his emotions and his childhood and just struggled with all of it. And I gave him this book and he just wept. And he said, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever been given. Mm. And um, the party went ahead and it was beautiful. People were queuing up to talk to him, to talk about his old stories and his cycling stories and all the other stuff. And, um, and then at the end of it all, you know, he said, hey, that was a good do, weren't it, lad? You know, Northern, good do. And the next day he went back in hospital and three months later he was dead. And so I... Um, that's the first time I heard the voice and that's why I decided to trust the voice about the book. Mm -hmm. Initially, I thought the book was going to be about my relationship with Elle, my marriage. And it was, and I started writing and something didn't feel right. It, it felt very, very, I just felt very, very awkward. Like something wasn't right about it. Like I was barking up the wrong tree. And, um, it was only when my uncle Eddie died, who I grew up with, and he was like my second dad, really. Um, he died and I went to his funeral. So I traveled up north and I went to the funeral. And when I was coming back, I was stuck in a traffic jam and just sat in this traffic jam. And then clear as day, <laughs> clear as day, I just heard the words, odd man out, breaking the vow of male silence for men who want to know more about themselves and women who want to know more about the men in their lives. Yeah boom that was it that was the title it was given to me 
I came home, I told Elle, I said, it's changed. The book's being scrapped that was being written. We're starting again. So I started, and I'll be absolutely honest with you, I hadn't got a bloody clue what I was doing. I, you know, I'm like, who am I really to talk about this? I, you know, all I've got is my story. I thought, well, I'll start there. So I started with my story, and then I started doing the research for the book. Elle said, you've got to do research if you're doing a book. I'm like, research? What's that? <laughs> That would be my reaction. So I did. You've lived your research. You are it. (laughs) (laughs) So what followed really were, I I, I can't lie about this. It has been one of the hardest things I've ever done four years in. But I have to admit, we look at every time we read it and every time I read parts of it, I cry. And we look at each other and Elle looks at me and she's kind of like, for me, the benchmark. She's already edited best-selling books. And she's looking at me and she's saying to me, this is bloody good, you know. This is really good. And, um, and, you know, initially we took the book to a, a well-known publisher and said, what do you think of this? And they went, we can't publish you. Nobody knows you. I said, well, if you, you won't, if you don't publish it, will you? Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, we, the message I got back was that I wanted the book in its rawest form. I wanted it to be the director's cut. So we, we've really done our best to really raise the money and really self-publish this initially on demand. And, um, you know, we're over four years in now and it's still not out there, but we're getting close. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm, really, I'm really proud of what we've done, you know. And for me, even if one person reads it and it helps them in some way, then I've done my job. Um, and already, you know, the feedback's been fantastic from people reading the first chapter. So I, I, I'm, I'm really, it feels very risky for me, this for me, being out in the public arena, you know what I mean? Because straight away all this stuff comes up about being called names and being stu- called names in class. And it, every time I take that step, I know I break the vow. And, you know, and like Brandy Brown says, you know, every time I know I've broken the vow, this vulnerability hangover follows it. You know, and, and I feel just like shit for two days. I can't, I just struggle, you know, I fall apart. And I'm, but I keep going because I know that this message is so important. Yeah. You know, you know so, I, I, my wife is often here and she does a lot of work with women about breaking vows. And I want to share um, some advice. She, whenever you have that feeling, you know, you're breaking a vow. She's like, celebrate, yeah. dance. Because right? that means ah, right? like you're, it, you're at the edge, you're breaking new ground. So don't Woo! let it, you can invite, right. It doesn't take you down for two days. It's like, oh, I feel like crap. Oh, good. I feel like crap. At this time, right? Yeah, that, you, have friend, yeah, yeah. That, you have a yeah. mutual friend that, you know, in fact, Andy, we should probably have her on the show sometime. Um, her name is Havelin, and she does this thing about the celebration as well. It's no mm. and just the power behind that. Yeah, yeah. Being able to yeah. celebrate and say, yay me, even the smallest things. It's like, I remembered to actually brush my teeth this morning. <laughs> you know, things yeah. as simple as that yeah. can so, so powerful yeah Yeah. every time you notice you've hit that vow and you're breaking you go for it yeah like yeah i'm doing like because you you are i mean it's your story this is your message you and you're going to be doing it forever like we said it's yep it's it's not Ah, break it once and it's done yeah (laughs) so you've chosen this path you're walking the path and i I love it 
Do you know, one of the things that really helped me understand the valve male silence was I was a really key, before I went back into bodybuilding, I was really, really, I, I, took, I, I started riding on the road. My dad was a road cyclist and I crossed back over to road cycling and uh, I started doing sportifs. And um, around that time, I started following Lance Armstrong. You know, he was an inspiration to me at that time. He was an inspiration to loads of people, wasn't he? And then it all started coming out about the drug use. Yeah. And around that time, I, I was really trying to understand what had happened. I felt really betrayed. Um, and um, I, I thought to myself, okay, I'll start reading material around this so I can understand it better. And one of the, the first terms I heard was omerta, which is a Latin term for code of silence or manhood, manliness. Yeah. And um, it's, it's a, what, that, what that means is in the mafia is that this code of silence, it doesn't matter whether you are, you know, whether you're an, it, it, whether you're sni if you snitch on any of your own and anyone who they're against, it is punishable by death. And so I started looking at that and I'm going, there's something really bugging me about this. And I started reading it and I thought, oh my God, I started looking at Omerta in the Peloton and then I started looking at branching out and looking at that collectively, how, how could that, that is how we live, that is men. That is what we're living under, we're living under Omerta. We're living under this code of conduct that says man up, man up, shut up, put up, you know, don't talk about it, be invincible, you know, Mr. Indestructible, Mr. Success, all of that stuff. And so I'm looking at that, I'm going, that is it. That is how I'm going to communicate it. But because I've been immersed in cycling, that's how I'm going to get it across to people. So I decided to use the cycling thing. And then I decided to branch out and talk about the vow of silence for men. Um, and so that has become, that was really helpful for me as well in helping me understand what was happening. Because I don't know about you guys, but there has been times in my life, even with the, all this work that I do, they've done where I still have days where I sit there and I feel completely confused about what the hell is going on here. Well, you know, it's been yesterday for me. So yeah, I understand right. exactly what you And again, it, yeah, it's yeah. being human. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. And, that's, and I love what you said about the, you know, the code of silence and you break the code and it's punishable by death. Yeah. Living the code is yes. what's freaking killing us. Is it, it, it's it creating is. an emotional death within. within. Yeah, a, li a living death. Yes. A living death. We become zombies. Definitely, yeah. definitely. And we almost become cardboard cutouts. You know, we walk mm -hmm. around in the world like, and, and there's nothing. For me, I don't, I love being around guys like you. You know, I love that we can have these conversations because for me, there is nothing sadder than when I'm out there in the world and it's like, it's just such a big deal for a guy to break the vow, you know? And, and I have friends now who I've tried to get close to, who I love, who basically bolt. Mm. When it gets too close for comfort, they're gone. Yeah. You know, and and that, everyone's on their own time frame and you can't yeah. force it on them, but just be there, let them know that you're, you know, whenever they're ready to feel, here you are. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. So that's been really, you know, really helpful. And I mean, one of the one of the things that we've done with the book is is the first part of the book is quite a harrowing read because we've called it the fall of man. Um, the book's in um, three parts. I'm trying to think what we've renamed the third part. Now it's changed again. But the, the the first two parts are called the fall of man, and then there's the rise of man. And so the fall of man is is very much, um, you know, it's it's very much exploring the current dilemma that we're in that we're facing and so it, using my story as well it, it really goes into everything from you know this vow of silence that we're under to 
um, you know, to uh, depression, suicide. Um, we cover the whole shebang. And um, it's, it was really hard to write. You know, we, we've got a chapter in there called Ego Rum Riot, which originally was called, it took me three months to write. It was called The Fear Spectrum. And it got scrapped at the end of the day. And it, it, it was rewritten as the, the Ego Rum's Riot. And it basically challenges everything from violent video games to porn hardcore porn mm-hmm. our use of it you know and and the damage and some of the statistics are harrowing i mean that we've done the research that we've done um and what we've done as well using of course miracles as the framework and and, and you know transpersonal psychology you know we're both training as counselors me and my wife and um what we've done is we've we've taken all our skills and we've started to um, how can I say, we started to unpick the dilemma in terms of what's happening for men in here, you know, and where that's leaving us. So, you know, it's very, I think nowadays out there in the world, it's very much about, we know men, there's a problem with men. We know suicide's four to one time time. We know men are depressed. And then it's like, and we need men to talk about it. It's like, have you ever tried getting a man to talk about it who is completely inept at feeling? who doesn't even think he has permission to open his mouth, you know? And, um, and so what tends to happen is then a man does that. So then we pass the Prozac and we leave him in a catatonic state like they did with me on the sofa, put him back in the box and then say, now off you go. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're really doing, we're upholding our murder. So I always said to Elle when we were writing this book, I always said I wanted to show a way through this struggle, through this dilemma. I wanted to present the dilemma in its undiluted form. I didn't have no intention to dress it up. It's a grim read is the first part of the book. I'm not going to lie about it. But it also starts to help men understand how their thinking is affecting them you know and 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 um and how that every man has been wounded in childhood you know we all carry wounds to different you know the form's different for for all of us in terms of how we were wounded some people might not relate to my story but they have their own story you have your story and you have yours up your everybody does the listener has theirs but i think um through the many years of experience of work i've done in therapy and so on i found that whenever i feel any kind of discomfort if i allow myself to have that experience and it might be anger initially to the degree i allow myself to express that anger is to the degree i will allow myself to express and feel the guilt and shame that's beneath it and when i allow myself to do that it points back to a time in my past when some wounding took place and it allows me to go back there and revisit the scene of crime now if i can do that what will happen a belief will emerge a belief that I've been living by. This is what I believe about myself. And so we've done this whole section on beliefs, you know, and, and most of the beliefs are quite common for men. It's all about being unlovable, being a failure, being inadequate, being a bad man, you know, and it all starts with the words I am, you know, and we carry these things around like some kind of, like we're standard bearers, you know, this is who I am. This is who I believe I am. So even though a part of us may want to change there's an unconscious part of us, a sick thought system and a belief system that's driving it. And so we end up very confused and often violently confused, you know, as a result of that. So we really kind of map that out and we open that up and we really have, and, and the whole book has exercises all the way through it to help men individually explore what's happening for them. And, and, and each time they do, it's all about breaking this vow. You know, let's get honest here about what is happening for me and let's get honest with what's happening for me underneath the anger beautiful you know 
and so we've gone into all that and then and then in the second part of the book we start to um we start to explore uh what taking responsibility means you know and being accountable for our thoughts our feelings our actions we explore escape routes in great detail and how we can block those exits so that we can feel again we talk about um, grieving the lost boy so we we very much delve into this again you know this 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 child almost like this metaphorical boy inside of us that we abandoned at a very young age and we start to to explore what that would mean to actually go back into that dark basement and actually hold his hand and allow him to feel again mm-hmm. um and part of that when we we talk about feelings and, and it, I, I when i wrote this about real men cry which is perfect because you know you've got real men feel real men cry i wrote this whole thing on crying and i was looking at me she says what are you going to write about i said i'm going to give men guidelines about what to do when they start crying <laughs> <laughs> and he's like are you are you serious? I'm like, no. I said, that's how bad it is. I said, I'm actually going to give men permission to feel, you know, I'm going to help here. And they can think what they want. But one of the things that I, uh, I, I always remember was in that moment, you know, when I, when I first started to go into therapy and started to do workshops, you know, whenever, whenever I cried, I don't know if you've ever found this, and they do it all with the best of intentions. Someone rushes over with the tissues, the man-sized tissues. It's like they might as well just have a mop and bucket. You know, it's like, he's crying. I can't cope with it. Quick, get the mop and bucket out. We need to mop up here, you know. <laughs> Clean up on aisle five. Yeah. And, and so many guys I find, like, guys will cry just enough to get back under control and then stop. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, like, let it go. No, so, you know, one, one of the things I say is, you know, fuck it to the man-sized tissues. You don't need it, you know. Right. You know nothing man-sized about man-sized tissues, is there? <laughs> so, um, so we explore that. And then there's this wonderful piece in the book about, uh, about fathers and their sons. And I share my whole story about what happened with my dad and how our relationship and how I sort of healed my relationship with him, what I had to go through. And, um, and we, we, there's a beautiful exercise in there for, for, for sons and, and for fathers, you know, um, to really explore that. And what we've done as well in the, the back of the book, in the appendix, we've put like maybe 30, 40 questions about what you could ask your dad to get to know him better. Oh, cool. So... <laughs> You know, um, and I was really, I loved it when Nicky talked about what he's doing, you know, with um, the journeyman stuff with the father and sons. I thought that was beautiful. I really did. So, yeah, we've done all that. And then we've covered things about around solitude and stillness and true brotherhood and legacy. Um, and, and it's just trying to communicate it in such a way that your, your average bloke can get it without running a mile, you know, yeah. so. Let's help, help the average bloke not be so average in there. <laughs> yeah. Stuffing yeah. of crap. Reminds me of Yogi Bear, you know, smarter than the average bear, you know. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's what we need. I love it. Yeah, so. So, so we're so that, talking to you in, in April of 2017. So is, yeah. there, is, is there a target? Is, is the book imminent? Uh, like what, what are you, <laughs> we're aiming for early May, I think. Oh, great. Um, I had the cover shoot today and, um, I just every single step I've had to take has been it's felt like a granite wall um but I keep going you know and um you know I was really vulnerable having the shoot done today and that's and I just know that you know what better great way to break the valve and to get an amazing photographer to take a picture of me being vulnerable yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. 
Yeah, so, you, you, um, you are the team. Like you got to walk your talk, and what you need, yeah. uh, what you, uh, you need to learn is what you teach and share. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, when you when you discover that you're living all these cliches you've heard, oh, and you find they're true. I, I had like yesterday. I have to confess this. This is another moment. I was, I was out walking the dog with Ellen, and I was really jumpy, you know, really edgy about things. And the shoot was coming up, and I knew I was on here tonight, and. And she, she just turned around to me and she's like, you know, will you cut the crap? I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, will you tell me what's going on? And I basically threw a tantrum in the middle. <laughs> but you know what happened? In the middle of this field walking this dog, I, I initially started ranting and raving. You know, this ego, as of course in Miracle Story, this ego, this voice that wants to be strong, it's ranting, who are you? to be talking about this. Mm. Who the fuck are you? You know, who, who the hell do you think you are going on this show with these guys who might ask you questions that you don't understand? And they're probably way better than you and, and you're, gonna, you're gonna look an idiot. And all this stuff came out. And then basically she looked at me and she went, you look like you need a really good cry. And I just fell apart <laughs> and I had a good cry. But, but the important piece was what followed because I think this is where we tend to stop. You know, we have these emotions and it's fantastic. There's nothing more beautiful than a guy on the other side of a murder, you know, when he's, when he's really in his emotions and he's feeling. Um, but one of the most important pieces that I'm trying to get across in the book is this piece around thoughts. You know, you are what you think. And, um, and you know, if it's true that I made up a mistaken belief about myself, which for example, yesterday Elle asked me, she's like, what do you believe in about yourself? And I'm like, well, it's reminded me of this time when I was a boy trying to be like my dad and never feeling good enough. And so, well, what did you make that mean about you? Well, I, that I'm inadequate in some way, that I'll never measure up to dad. And then what we did, we took a moment making eye contact where I correct those beliefs. So I actually say to her and I allow myself to feel it, you know, that I'm, I'm more than adequate. Yeah. You know, and that I have a message to communicate to the world here and that I'm perfectly safe and that Andy and Appy are my friends, they're my brothers. And you feel the shift, you feel it even as I'm saying it, yeah? There's just yeah. this shift. Oh, yeah. And so that's the work that I do and that's the work I've been doing for the last 20 odd years. Beautiful. Mm. Yeah. You know, you and I are the same age and mm. one of the things I've discovered now, I, my journey of releasing all of my stuff started consciously maybe about eight years ago or so mm. unconsciously it started probably way before that yeah, I was yeah. 20 some odd years ago also right 1996 ish 97 ish range now i think about it but what i've discovered along that journey you probably have observed this yourself mm. there, there's an emotional res residue that just keeps bubbling yeah. up periodically it's like peeling yeah. back the layers of the onion Mm. And, you know, it just, when it comes up, it's no matter just allowing it to release. It's what yeah. I call the fourth principle of joy, which is every emotion you feel is yeah. an expression of the totality of your existence. Of totality yeah, I like that. You are. I like that. Yeah. I like that. And I, the, another way I, I like in, it was in the Nine Inch Nails song where I'm just an echo of an echo of an echo. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes what happens is the more you delve into this work, when these things bubble up, I just see them now almost as an echo of something from my past that's, that's, that's up for healing. Yeah. Uh, and I find that really useful because what that's enabled me to do now, and it's took me many years, I've actually finally got to this place where I can tell my story, but I know I'm not my story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? Yes. Yes. That, and that, that's, that's a big shift. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's took a that's took a lot of years, you know, to get to that, to that place, you know. And and um, but I feel very very grateful 
for that, you know, for that kind of awareness. And it feels really, really, um, I feel really proud of myself that I'm, I'm actually now taking that out and saying to maybe I could help other people here understand this dilemma better and give men a better framework to work with them, to help them in their daily life. And let me you know, I'm give you one thing on that, like erase maybe, right? There's, there's no yeah. more maybe. So yeah. it's not a maybe. Thank you. like, you're, Thanks you're for reminding it. me. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. I think there's always that seed of doubt. There's the echo of the echo, you know? Just uh -huh. yeah. And it happens so automatically too. Yeah. You know, we just, you know, these words just come up so, because they've been so much of a part of how we speak, how we express ourselves. We don't mm. even catch it unless we have a good mm. conversation in the safe space like what we're doing right now. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to yeah. support each other and be able to do that. And we yeah, can only yeah. release, like we, we release stuff, we grow, we feel, and it gets you to a new level of your own awareness, yeah. your consciousness. And then yeah. like that same old story, that same mm. pattern, there's another piece mm. of it that now you're willing to let go of that too. Yeah. So that's why it yeah. isn't one and done. It's not bricked about once, right? Yeah, it's like peeling the layers of an onion. You know, you peel one off, you have another. And one, one of the things I did when I was out in Canada, I remember many years ago, there was an exercise in, I don't know if you've ever heard of Paul Farini. There was, a, he did the Silence of the Heart, can, uh, Love Without Conditions. And I really delved into that book. I love that book. And um, there was an exercise in one of the books I don't even think it was them, come to think of it now. <laughs> but anyway, there was this beautiful exercise about, he said, find a river and follow it for a day. Mm. Uh, and so I thought, okay, I'll do that. Which was quite difficult in Toronto. So I went to this park and I found this kind of river and I thought, well, it's got to start and finish somewhere. <laughs> so I, I started uh, walking, following this river. And at different times, you know, at different times the river was flowing and there were other times when the river didn't seem like it was flowing at all, like the water was stagnant. And at those times, I remember just putting my head down on the bank and putting my head close to the water and I could hear the water on it. And I thought to myself, ah, you know, we're always becoming more conscious, even when it looks like nothing's happening. Yes. Yes. And so that was a really beautiful example for me you know, to do that. Yeah. So I, I love that. I love that as a metaphor. I imagine if yeah. I really followed a river all day, I'm going to be lost. At some yeah. Point. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, yeah. The, I love, you know, that's yeah. the point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Almost got arrested for like, <laughs> I thought I was kind of like stalking somebody in some park or something, you know, like, who's this, who's this, who's this weirdo walking around this park sort of listening to rivers. Listening to the ground. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> so, so what's the best way for people to, to track uh, you, to get in touch with you, to, to follow the progress of the book? Uh, well, we were on, um, I think the, the easiest way uh, to contact us, if they want to contact us about the book, uh, that's at oddmanout.book at gmail.com. And I think the easiest way would be to go to Facebook, which uh, we've got a page on Facebook. Um, which we'd love for everybody to like. Come on and follow. Um, Facebook.com slash break the vow. Um, if you click the learn more button on there, you can, and, and you sign up, you'll receive the first chapter of the book for free. Cool. So, um, so that's, I think, the easiest way. All right. Uh, and we'll, we'll, um, anyone listening, wherever you're listening, visit the show notes at realmenfield.org. We'll, we'll list all your social media contacts so people can yeah. get in touch in that chapter. Wonderful. So I just want to keep, let's just keep going with this. You know, it's always felt like a movement to me. And, and someone said to me recently, he said, uh, he said, this isn't, I, I've always believed the book was bigger than me. 
um, that it was more about the message. And, and one of the, the people, a friend of ours who I met in at Camp JLP in New York um, last year, um, he, he read the book. He, he actually was one of the first readers of the book. And he said he sees it as our book. He sees it as our book. It's everybody's book. Yeah. And uh, the message is for everyone, even, even if the ones who think they're not ready for it, they just don't know it yet. But I think I really see it as a, a companion. I see, I, you know, I see it going hand in hand with all the other great work that's taking place, you know, um, at the moment that's out there. And I see it as a blueprint. I see it as something that men can keep. It's not a book that's just going to be read once. I think it's something that a man will keep and that he can keep coming back to. Yeah. And that possibly he could take into a group situation as well and yeah. say, how about we work through this mm. tonight? Let's do this exercise. Let's read this together and we'll do this exercise. Yeah. I, think, I think at the end of the day, I, you know, I, I know there's many different ways home. Um, <clears throat> but I truly believe really there's only one of us here, you know, and that, we're all really, however, messily trying to get back to that state of wholeness. And, um, and I, I really think it's important that regardless of what path we choose, that one of the things I want, hopefully, that the book is going to help people with is that, that we're all going to be on the same page here. Mm. And I think we know we're on the same page when it comes to feeling and talking and sharing our experiences. Um, but I'd like that to become more, I'd like that to be, what's the word, like, um, I'd like that to be across the board, you know. I'd like to see Odd Man out in many different languages. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to, uh, I, I really think it, the message is that important. And the time is now. It's so urgent, this message. Yeah, you know? the, the, the time was years ago. We're, <laughs> yeah, we're, of course we're it was. Yeah. Of course it was. <laughs> we are we just realized it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but again, it's, it's everyone, it's, it's when <laughs> it's ready is divine timing. But yeah, we're, we're dealing with stuff that ideally was dealt with a while ago and i'm sure well, it always was yeah, too you know what? it's, it's also interesting right now in the world you know with yeah. with what we see happen particularly in the political sphere and so within seven years that are popping up the timing could not have been more divinely orchestrated yeah. definitely and, and especially you know recently i mean the duke of cambridge over here that all this mm-hmm. stuff starting around suicide and stigma around male depression and mm-hmm. and and it, it's really starting to come into the mainstream now, but I still think there's a degree of confusion around it. I think it's very, very hard for men to under, for people in general to understand why men take their own lives, you know, especially men who look like they've got it all together, yeah. you know, and, and I think it, it's important that we start to prize that open. And I think that's what we've done in Odd Man Out. We've actually took a real risk here to really prize that open because um, it's time. And I'm like, okay, I'm willing to stick my neck out here, you know, with this one. I'm willing to stick my neck out. And if it, like I said, if it helps one person and it goes on to help another person, another person, it's job done, isn't it? Job done. It's all been worth it, you know, and I wouldn't change a thing that's happened to me. You know, my story's brought me to where I am. I I wanted to say that to you. I was like, I'm so glad that all these horrible (laughs) things happened to you. Who is this guy? Yeah. Yeah. I I bless you with your traumas, right? Like, and and I want to really resonate just again introducing the top of the show that that we're all kind of going through the same things and every experience you might be having is shared but so much yeah. of what you shared today like you know I'm a survivor of sexual abuse I'm a suicide yeah. attempt survivor I did uh, a decade ago wrote my story surviving myself yeah. my story went to publishers like this book's amazing it's needed but nobody knows who you are we're not going to touch it I'm like oh, thanks. No. Yeah. but yeah. again it led to all this it led yeah. to real me feel led to mm-hmm. you know coaching people yeah. and helping Brilliant. them wake up and i you're you're doing the same thing and yeah. you 
inspire readers to do the same thing. And because, yeah. you know, all of our stories are intermeshed and the same, yet they are individual. And how you phrase something connects with someone, how I phrase something, yeah. how I connect, it <laughs> connects with different men and gives everybody permission to, to stop being silent, to stop burying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. I, well, I was saying to Elle today, I said, I was so, your video made me laugh the other day, the post about the combat. <laughs> 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 you know, the whole, the whole um, thing about the step class. And I thought it was brilliant. And I was laughing and I was chuckling at it. And I was walking around with Elle today and, I, and I'm still, it still makes me chuckle. And, and I said, did you see the, did you see the step class video from around the laughing. But you know what? stands out for me andy about you and i and i haven't known you that long but we have talked obviously on we skyped but one of the things that stands out for me i said to Elle, i said the one thing that comes across in you i said you know you're you've attempted suicide you've had all this happen to you i said and the reason why i see you as so alive and so intense you know when you do your videos passionate i think that's a better word for one of a word um is because it's a life or death situation you know, this is a life or death situation we're dealing with here. And for me, I salute you because that for me is the work. You know, you are such a shining example of someone who's breaking the vow. And, you know, and you continue to do that. And, and it just, for me, it, it lifts me up. And, it, and, you know, makes my heart sing when I see that. And uh, I just wanted you to know that, you know. I, I don't, I, it's it, on the one and, you know, I don't know you that well, but on the other hand, I know you very deeply, yeah. you know, because you're my brother in the same way you are, Apio, mm -hmm. that we're all connected. Indeed. Indeed. Uh -huh. I, I have to echo what you, what you said, Nigel. I, you know, I admire Andy so greatly for his passion, for his rawness, for I don't do it as frequently. We oftentimes do it between the two of us and I'm when it's just the two of us speaking. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, it, yeah. I, I could not have expressed it better myself. So thank you for expressing what we both feel. I think there comes a time, doesn't there, Apio, where you're, uh, you reach a point on the path where it's like, I can't go back. I cannot go back to the <laughs> life I knew. Yes. And so there's kind of an intensity to it, to it. You see it a lot in people in recovery you know, for drugs yes. and alcohol. This, and it's like, oh my God, this is the only moment here that really matters. This is it, you know? And... Um, I, and, and I don't know about you, Andy, but, you know, at different times I've had people say, you're just too intense. And it's like, you know something? I'd rather be fucking intense and alive than, <laughs> you know, than sort of going out with a whimper and half dead. Uh -huh. because, because I'm actually afraid to walk my talk and speak my truth and speak about what's happening for me and allow myself to really fully engage with my feelings and what's happening in my inner world and communicate that to other people. Do you know something? People want to call that intense. So be it. Yeah, I have nothing wrong with so intense. And, oh, I'll take what that. I'll take it. Absolutely. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. I really, I really want to thank. Um, I, 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 luckily you guys kept talking. So, but I thought, well, this is gonna be the first show that I'm crying on. But oh, uh, not another I'm one. Really feeling? No, I love it. I would love it. But uh, <laughs> have a you know, cry. I realize. I, I realize if, I, if, if I'm silent, if I'm not authentic, if I'm not, I, I'd be dead. Yeah. And, and yes. so, and I've learned enough to trust that whatever I feel compelled to make, compelled to share, I know there are millions of other people going through that exact same freaking thing. Yeah. And, and you know, sharing whatever's going on for any of us allows everybody else to feel whatever's going on for them. So, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I, I, I love you, Nudge. <laughs> thank you for all your, all your words. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for continuing to break the vow, for, for doing you. work. Because individual work serves 
everybody's work. Very much right? so. There's no really think, separation. Yeah. I think if we can do our individual work, you know, we, we, in the section in True Brotherhood in the book, we're like, how do we get men to do this? One, I remember, um, oh, what's he called? I forgot his name. Now. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> and uh, one of, um, James Hollis in his book, uh, Under Saturn's Shadow, he was saying one of the hardest things is to actually get men into a group situation. You know, my experience has been once you get men into a group situation, they're fine. They'll go for it. Once yeah. they see other men doing that, right. they'll do it. The hardest part is getting them in there. In the same way, the hardest part will be to get men to read the book. You know, that women are going to play such a pivotal role in getting that mm -hmm. message out of men. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> so um, I think, um, <laughs> yeah, and, and I think, um, so one of the ways that we've approached that is we've approached it almost like a pack. I was thinking of the, you know, the Rudyard Kipling about the strength of the wolf being the pack. And, and very much like when I trained my dog, when me and the dog go for a walk, we walk as a pack even though there's only two of us. I'm pack leader, she follows, yeah? Yes. So it's slightly different. So what I thought was, what if we invent this like buddy system where men buddy up with another man and each once every two weeks or a month or whatever, they get together and they have 10, 15 minutes where they, the one person shares and, they, and they're not allowed to talk about anybody else. They can only talk about what's happening for them. And then they stop and they say, and the other person says back to them, they don't try and fix them. They say, thank you for breaking the vowel male silence. And then we move on to the other person and they share. So we're just trying to somehow make those connections, make, join those dots together and yeah. bring men together. Um, so I do think it is very much about the individual work, but I think, um, you know, we can't go home alone. And I think it's important that we eventually start to branch out. And, and I really, I see that for Obman out. I don't quite fully know how that's supposed to look yet, but I'm sure all will be revealed in time, you know, with that. But yeah, it's certainly lovely to be on this show anyway, to be able to talk about this stuff. It's really, really been brilliant. Yeah. And I just, uh, so once the book is out, we'll certainly let listeners know, we'll update people and we'll definitely yeah. have you back. And oh God! Thank you. I passed the right? test. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you are worthy. Well, it's, like, it's like oh God, we're not having him on again. <laughs> Thank God for that. Yeah. In fact, let's not run the show. My ego will learn nothing more. Oh, Put that yeah. one in the archives. Yeah. Well, let's not get over that. The Titanic. It's gone down. No, no. no. <laughs> Don't back up now. Don't start shrinking now, my friend. You've you've shrinked not... yourself so brilliantly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that, as they say, no, thanks for having me. You know, I really uh, appreciate it. I really appreciate it. It's been great connecting with you. Yeah, you too. Really so, uh, we'll be live again next Tuesday, May 2nd at 8 p.m. Eastern when we're going to be diving into fear. Um, it's going to be one of our, it's a free flowing organic show, no official guests. It's anyone that feels called to want to show up and share anything about fear um, to continue to break that vow of silence. Right. So I love yeah. I love the theme. I love it that we're continuing from today. Yeah. Uh, so thanks again, everyone, for for listening in. Thanks for joining us live. Uh, thank you, Nige. Thank you, Appia, of course, again. Of course. Thank you. Visit realmanfield.org. Check us out on Facebook. Send us feedback. Uh, take advantage of a free clarity call with me and, and dig in to your own silence. Dig into your energy. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon and keep breaking those vows. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Until next time, visit realmenfeel.org, join the Real Men Feel group on Facebook, and share what you thought of this show. Please give this podcast a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel. Reach out to us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. 
Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com and Apio Hunter at apiohunter.com.